from Lintard Artier. One of the great sounds of Ireland in the first half of the 20th century. One of the monster meetings which studded the long political career of Eamon de Valera. And it was a long career. Here he is in America in 1920, October 1920, speaking on the eve of the death of Kevin Barry. McSweeney and his comrades gave up their lives for their country. The English have killed them. Tomorrow a boy, Kevin Barry, they will hang. And he'll like, he will only regret that he has but one life to give. Oh God, for they shall be alive forever. They shall be speaking forever. They shall be remembered forever. The people will hear them forever. A career which ended only last June when Eamon de Valera retired from the presidency. And here he is speaking at Boland's Mills. The last 14 years, of course, of De Valera's public life were removed from the hurly-burly of politics. The age of de Valera, in the strict sense, may be said to have ended when he uh, retired from the office of Taoiseach in 1959. And it is the age of de Valera, in this sense, that has been discussed at the 6th Merriman Summer School in Scariff County, Clare. Uh, it's the subject of many lectures, discussions and seminars in which various aspects of the period are being looked at, as we've said, perhaps, with the hindsight of, well, perhaps it's not quite yet history, but at least, but certainly a certain perspective is perhaps beginning to emerge. Now, in the Clare Lakelands Hotel in Scariff, I have round the table with me here a number of the participants in the summer school. Pather O'Donnell, T. Desmond Williams, Liam Dupuyer, John A. Murphy, and Emmett Larkin from Chicago, because, of course, the life and times of de Valera uh, was not, were not just confined to Ireland. He was, in a, a very special way, a figure of importance in America, among the Irish in America. He also, as we'll hear later on, was a world figure. Liam Dupuyer, uh, you belong to a generation of historians, perhaps the first generation of historians, which can look at de Valera as a historian. Well, yes and no. In fact, my earliest political memory is when I was a small child, my father coming into me, it must have been in 1932, and saying, we have crowned de Valera King of Ireland. And that I was a phrase which was very much used at the yes, time. Yes. It was the refrain from a ballad. What is your earliest memory of hearing him spoken of, Desmond Williams? Can you think? I regret to say I do not remember. <laughs> That's a pity. But it was, he was part of all our childhoods, yours? Oh, yeah. yes. Um, earliest memories. Meetings in West Cork. And being introduced, being brought into the presence in a house. And uh, 
the sense of, of presence was overwhelming. Yes, he, of course, on his, as, as somebody mentioned at the open, it was, I think, Father O'Fenick, that the opening lecture here in the school on Friday evening, he spoke that one of the great uh, secrets of de Valera's political success was the way in which he did actually meet the people. Everywhere he went, he visited houses, he talked to people, and so on. Emmett Larkin, was he a name in the, among the Irish-Americans? Well, he certainly was a name in my house. Uh, my father uh, was a Republican during the Civil War and uh, spent several years in the Curra. And when he was released in 19, late 19, or should say about 1926, uh, he married uh, and uh, left for America, and I was born there. And uh, the name of de Valera and the whole Republican cause was a very real part of my early life in America. Naturally, all the exiles and the men who had been on the run with my father and Claire Galway here uh, congregated in our house and we would, the stories would be told and things would be turned over and over again. So De Valera uh, was, uh, can't always say uh, his name was blessed in my house, but uh, I would say that his name certainly figured in my house. My father, by the way, was born in the United States and had been brought back to Ireland like De Valera at a very early age. And uh, I once, in trying to tease my father, asked him, well, you know, when they, when they arrested you, why didn't you just simply tell them you're an American? And they would have given you a free trip to the United States. Now, in America, on St. Patrick's Day in 1920, De Valera spoke of Ireland and Ireland's relationships with England. No, the Irish do not hate England. The Irish desire peace with England as with the rest of the world. It is not the Irish who are disturbing the world's peace. It is not they who are the aggressors, it is the British. The British can end this question in an hour by withdrawing their troops. The Irish on their side can end it only by sacrificing their nationhood and their national rights to self-determination and freedom which are to yield. Ireland would have to give up what is hers, her own, her very life. England would only have to give up that, the possession of which is not vital to her, and to which in any case her title is but a robber's title. Ireland cannot will her own annihilation. It has cost her 750 years of blood and tears to hold on to her individual national existence, and she will not relinquish it now. The Irish Republic exists. Its shackles serve but to make its reality the more concrete. It is not destroyed when individuals or nations plunge their heads into the sand and say they cannot see it. It is there, recognized or not, and it can be destroyed only by the power that brought it into being, the will of the Irish people. De Valera speaking in America on St. Patrick's Day, 1920. Now, the only one taking part in our discussion here, who can be called a contemporary of De Valera's, and who indeed remembers De Valera in those years and before, is Padre O'Donnell. Padre, to what extent was he speaking as the voice of Ireland then? Well, I, I think one has got to remember that whereas sometimes strong personalities create a movement, 
Um, Dev's name was used as a slogan by the people. He didn't wish himself onto the people. They, they, they selected Dev in the moment of excitement as their slogan. Um, it's talking in America, I, I often asked Mellows in my joy jail why it was indeed that he and De Valera and others wasted their time in America. I thought it was bloody nonsense. Uh, I, 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 I wonder whether they're childish enough to think that the American government would recognize the Irish Republic or did they, is it that they didn't realize the degree to which the Irish people were prepared to make any kind of sacrifice and finance any kind of a movement. It seemed ridiculous to me that we were spending uh, time collecting a few dollars in America, or a few million dollars in America, at a time when we were paying millions a year to the British Exchequer ourselves. What do you feel about that, Desmond Williams? Pat, um, I, as far as I remember, reading about the subject, what he did in America was fully approved of by the people back here at the time, and particularly by Michael C C Collins. Uh, it was at, during his American trip that uh, certain o divisions began to display themselves back here at home. And there was, of course, the famous occasion on which he referred to the Cuba-USA relationship as providing the model for the relationships between Britain and Ireland. Well, if he'll repeat that now, I'd accept it. You would, but you didn't then. <laughs> but in any event, the point I would stress is that he did get a lot of money out there. He did put Ireland's name on the map very much. I think, Desmond, that Ireland put his own name on the map by his activities here. Well, I wouldn't disagree, but um, he was, as you said, the symbol. And I think the Irish abroad would always reflect the level of the excitement at home. It doesn't matter whether there was anybody emissary sent to them or not. But the pursuit of, of uh, hope for American recognition of the Irish Republic, which after all was, one, was perhaps the principal aim of its trip, this was a, a will-o'-the-wisp, this was a delusion. And uh, it's all like story, this was pursued uh, for so long, um, and set against Anglo-American solidarity, the way in which, for example, Washington um, refused to let Fenianism grow into any kind of significant movement. It should have been grasped, I think, that, that, that this was simply not on. Emmett Larkin? I, I think one of the most important things to remember that the phrase, uh, the Irish at home and abroad, became a very significant uh, phrase after the famine and that the Irish abroad uh, were as much a part of the Irish nation, the concept of the Irish nation. They were our di di diaspora or our people abroad. Now to, nowadays, uh, that is all over, and it's a little hard to recognize. And it was coming to an end uh, in De Valera's day, but the people who left their homes in 1847 and after in this country were indeed considered a very important part of the Irish nation. And they were bone of their bone and marrow of the marrow. Yeah, but I think that they, 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 they would reflect any excitement at home, but I, I don't think they promoted anything at home. Well, he was acting in a great tradition. I mean, Parnell went to America. All the emissaries went to America. Davitt went to America. The Irish race conventions were held in America. Uh, uh, the, the, there, was, there was a tradition uh, that was very real. 
it became, as you point out, less real by 1920. I think it was a weakness that was very real. I, I, and I think that the leaders devoted so much time to America that they, they, they just didn't realize the degree which it's very difficult today to think of the magic of the mass movement that arose following 1916. And I think that they underestimated what the people were prepared to do. And um, I think that these adventures abroad were just a waste of time. And a whole year and a half. Yeah. Eighteen months. Liam? Well, uh, I think it's somehow it fits into the pattern of Dev's life. He has a kind of gift for absenting himself from the center of the action while staying, as it were, on a pinnacle at the same time. Um, and this perhaps uh, is part of the secret of his success as a leader, that he always had not just a card but another sleeve up his sleeve by not being involved directly uh, at any stage really where things were crucial. He, you don't find him in the center of things. Uh, he's up above the center, but slightly withdrawn. And this perhaps uh, is one of the, I, I don't suggest that this was a deliberate thing, but it is part it's of one the of the real qualities it, of leadership. It partly explains the origins of the Civil War, because in that period, de Valera did not lead. He allowed things to happen. Well, I think this is something that really should be disposed of once and for all. I wasn't one of the very prominent uh, figures in the IRA, but I was a member of the IRA executive. And I can say quite without the slightest doubt that de Valera had no responsibility for the Civil War. But he should have had some responsibility. But he couldn't have. Uh, Collins was had much more influence with the IRA than de Valera ever had. And Collins had fantastic contact with the First Southern Division not only personally, but in his authority as they are be. And yet he was unable to make any influence, any dent in the, in the solidarity of the First Southern Division. And if Dev had joined Collins, it wouldn't have mattered one damn. Desmond Williams, am I misquoting you when, uh, when I say that? Was it, uh, was it not you who has, uh, wrote or said sometime that in the fateful weeks before the Civil War actually broke out, that Collins said too much and Dev too little? Yes. And you'd agree, you'd stand by that? Fully. Because yes. Dev de de couldn't say very much because the relationship between Dev and the IRA executive was such that he just hadn't any authority. Oh yes, but that's at the level of, of causation, so to speak. What about his responsibility? considerable and enormous prestige, which what he could have used for, uh, for reconciliation? Well, funny enough, I, I don't think he had the slightest bit... I remember Collins in a moment of exasperation saying, if you throw me into the arms of that old bollocks Griffith, you'll bloody well pay for it. And uh, uh, that was the kind of temper of the time. And um, Liam Lynch, Liam Mellows and those had great, made great efforts at, at reconciliation. But it was quite impossible to reconcile the position of IRA with the stand that had been made on the treaty. One kind of reconciliation, of course, which never took place, uh, perhaps it never will, is the reconciliation between the Northeast or the majority in the Northeast and the rest of the country. Uh, partition is, of course, one of the great sores, one of the great blots on the age of de Valera. Uh, he spoke about it many times, and in 1938, uh, one of his um, uh, radio uh, talks on this subject um, is, I think, of uh, rather interesting significance in view of the uh, recent uh, adumbration of a two-nations theory. As partition continues, there will remain an open wound, a bitter reminder of the past, 
and a point of danger in times of crisis. Everyone who desires goodwill between Ireland and Britain must explore this situation. And today, I appeal to all who may hear me, and especially to the millions of our race scattered throughout the world, to all who glory in the name of Ireland, to join with us in a great united movement to bring it quickly to an end. The division of Ireland into two political units rests on no real ethnic or geographic basis. The area cut off corresponds to no natural historical entity. Partition was created by an act of the British Parliament some 18 years ago, a purely artificial and arbitrary creation. The majority of the people of Ireland had demanded the right to govern themselves. A minority preferred to be governed from a central parliament in London. The latter, relatively in greater numbers in Belfast and its neighborhood, had sufficient influence in Britain to cause to be cut off and given to them the largest area which they could hope to hold with a stable majority. The area cut off comprises six northeastern counties. It is not the province of Ulster, but only six of Ulster's nine counties. So that the historic province of Ulster, as well as Ireland itself, is partitioned. In the province of Ulster as a whole, the Belfast party could not secure a majority. Even in the six counties, there are a local majority in half the area only. And so we have it that those who cut themselves off from the nation rather than accept the rule of the majority want to be allowed to rule the counties of Tyrone and Fermanagh, the constituencies of South Armagh, South Down and South East Down, and the city of Derry, in all of which there are majorities which resent bitterly the regime imposed upon them and object to being detached from the rest of their nation. Those who would excuse the partition of Ireland try to pretend that there are two Irish nations. That contention is plainly absurd. In the Irish nation, there is a diversity of political opinions, it is true. In it, there is an admixture of blood, as there is in England, France, Germany, and every other nation in the world. But there are no more two Irish nations than there are two English, two Scotch, two Welsh, or two French. There is one Irish nation, and that nation claims sovereignty over the whole of its historic territory. Well, now I know Pather O'Donnell is anxious to speak, but uh, before you do, Pather, I'd like uh, a word from you, Liam. Well, the uh, reference to the two-nation theory is interesting. Of course, the two-nation theory does go back a uh, good deal before 1938, uh, but it's interesting. But I think even more interesting here is the approach to partition, which shows uh, certain characteristics of uh, very clearly the pedantry, the, s the schoolmasterly spelling out uh, detail by detail, and the kind of legalism involved in it, uh, which seems to me to get a bit unreal. 
uh, not to face uh, the, the hard realities of, of the situation on the ground in the northeast. Johnny? Um, yeah, and mathematical analysis as well. Yes. You know, um, what he said there is, is true as far as it goes, but it's not very helpful, and it was never very helpful. And, and it just reflects the whole southern attitude towards the north for the last hundred years, in fact. Consider what he said, if I may read a brief extract from what he said at the time when the Boundary Commission uh, debacle happened. And uh, he addressed, he gave a message on that occasion, and he said, it is hard to be calm when one remembers that it is our fairest province that is being cut off. The Ulster that the Irishman of every province loves next best to his own. The Ulster of Coo of Red Branch Knights, the O'Neills, O'Donnells, Ben Barbiel of Ford. Now, in all that, he, he, what we have is a lament for a lost green field, which is at the beginning and the end of southern misunderstanding of the North. No reference whatsoever, by the way, to the other Ulster in this speech. He's not regretting the loss of the Ulster of, of the Boyne and Derry's walls and... Well, Pather, you're an Ulsterman. Um, I come from that part of Southern Ireland that's known as Donegal. <laughs> but uh, uh, um, I really wanted to say, and that's more to Desmond Williams, I, I, I think there's a factor in this Northern situation that never comes up, and that is that how, how dearly we're paying for the backwardness of the British working class. <coughs> uh, a backward British working class is reflected <coughs> in the trade union and working class levels in Belfast, and the conceited nationalism that makes all sections of the British people backward on the Irish question is reflected through the, Belf the, 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 the Belfast workers who are backing um, the, the Paisley, the, um, the partition thing. Of course, the question of the two nation thing is just nonsense. Funny enough, I came across this question of the two nations in, in Poland. Uh, I met so much knowledge of Ireland that uh, eventually I asked what is the explanation for it. And they said that the adult education thing, the national question, was always on the curriculum. And that some bright boy came up with the question that Ireland was really two nations, two traditions, and that a second tradition rested on the siege of Derry. Now, this was in Warsaw, this discussion was taking place. And in their ponderous way, this was referred to the wise men for a decision. And the decision was that when the British monarchy disappears in the ripening socialism of the British people, with it will go the feudal remnant that dominates northeast Ulster. And in that state of things, that the oneness, the, 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 the orange tradition of the north will no longer separate the Irish people, will be one nation, one people, one tradition. And I have never felt any question of among the orange men in the north that they were separate people from us. It's one of the problems which strikes me always about Dev's career is the ambiguity about the North. What does he want most? The restoration of the Irish language or the unification of the country? Because I think that they are incompatible. And on one or two occasions, he has given the impression that he would favor the postponement of unification if he could, in fact, utilize the interval given to uh, e effectively achieve the restoration of Irish. Which comes first? Because I don't think you can have both. Well, if he gave that uh, an impression publicly, it wasn't his private view. I can tell you that. What was his private view? His private view that the unification of the country was more important than, the lang than language. 
But uh, may I, as a layman, But isn't there any conflict between them? May I suggest that the two things are of a very different order? That, you know, achieving, the use of the word achieve in, means a very different thing in the, in the two, uh, in regard to the two objectives. I mean, you, uh, the achievement of national unity could conceivably, uh, at least as a, as a, uh, uh, as a matter of uh, fact, and um, a matter of legal fact, uh, be done by political action uh, uh, in Parliament or whatever. That, uh, that, of course, the achievement of the restoration of the Irish language is, an, is a whole m complex of psychological and cultural move, uh, uh, things which, which couldn't possibly, the two things, I, I don't think the two things are, can be compared at all. No, that, I don't think they... they but anyway, Desmond, uh, I must disagree with Desmond about this. Uh, I don't think that there's any necessary incompatibility there, any clash of, of aims. Um, what the real contradiction was in, in de Valera's whole lifetime, if you like, was the notion that you, you could still aspire to unity while creating a confessional state down here, which is what he did and which is what everybody uh, consented to. And, and it, that is the incompatibility. The, I mean, and this yeah. contradiction is there in the Constitution, uh, and the, the whole business of a Catholic Constitution, which has territorial claims to unity. Liam? Uh, there's the contradiction. I, th I think it's there in the very uh, use of the word nation in that passage we've lis listened to. Nation is used in two different senses, but he glides imperceptibly from one sense mm. to another. In one sense, he's using it as an ethnic thing, as Cúchulainn and all that, and the Irish language and so on, is what's involved in the concept. And then he talks about the mixture of blood and traditions and backgrounds and so on, which is a different kind of thing altogether. It's a community of people who agree mm. to live together. <coughs> Uh, in a particular way. And this shifting uh, of meaning from one foot to the other in reference to the nation embodies the ambiguity about the North, which I think does run through not only de Valera's thinking, but the thinking of a great many people in this age. Edward Larkin? Yes, I, <coughs> I think that's, that's very true. And I think, uh, to oversimplify it a little, what we're talking about here uh, is the concept of a state in which a group of people uh, will communalize and have different interests in what the Americans would call a pluralistic society where you have different religious points of view, different uh, social common denominators and the rest of it. But when you're talking about Kuhalan and you're talking about uh, the national identity, it seems uh, to me uh, to be rather difficult to visualize some uh, orangeman on the 12th of July in his bowler hat assuming uh, the, 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 ethnic, uh, the ethnic identity uh, of, of, of what, what, what is involved here in, in the South. Pardon? Of a Clare man. Of a Clare man. Well, I, I, I had the funny experience of a, a deputy master of an orange lodge willing me his sash. So uh, we weren't so very far away from Did you wear it, Pather? I have it at home. Uh, no, that's... Um, and I wore it once or twice. By the way, I'm surprised that nobody took up John A. Murphy uh, when he spoke of de Valera as setting up our, our wanting a confessional state down here. Well, I think we all agree with that. <coughs> but the only th the thing that I objected to in the discussion on the Constitution was that it should be approached from the point of view of what would make it attractive <coughs> to the North. I would approach it from the point of view of getting rid of things that outraged me as a Republican. And anything in the Constitution that, that um, departed from Tone's doctrine would outrage me. And what did? The whole, bloody, the con the whole bloody Constitution did. <laughs> Any particular detail? Yeah. Challenge your own um, Yeah, the, the question that the Catholic Church had, uh, had a special place in the community, it was a, 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 a quotation from 
from uh, actually it's a quotation from uh, from Napoleon's concorded with the Pope. Was it not a description of fact? Yeah, but we were, if, we were, if it was a description of fact in, in Redmond's time that we were a contented part of the British Empire. And it was fully acceptable, fully acceptable, the confessional clause was fully acceptable to the Protestant Archbishop of Dublin. Oh, well, the, Arch, the Archbishop of Dublin and Archbishop of any... Uh, well, look, the confessionalism, it's not just in the Constitution. This is a bit of a diversion, really. The confessionalism I speak of consisted of things like, you know, the, the, the actual, if not formal, establishment of uh, the values of Irish Catholicism and enshrined more or less in law and, and so on. And, uh, and the yeah, well, quite right, uh, uh, the, the Constitution well, I, I, I puts I the seal on it. I got more battering from Crozier's than most people in this country. And you know, I resent, I resent the suggestion that this is a clerical-ridden country. We're just a Yahoo-ridden church, and it's the backward bastards of the laity that were behind most of the backwardness that, that was pushed from, pushed articulated through the The Constitution, priest. which is so, so very much a uh, de Valera's document, uh, does sum this up very uh, succinctly, though, because here you have the personal uh, philosophy of a Roman Catholic Irishman expressed mm. in a public document, which really runs counter to the public Republican tradition. Yeah. It uh, sets the seal to two. It sets areas. the seal to two nations. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it sets the seal to the two nations in the worst way that perhaps it could be said. That's true. Because it comes in in terms of what is the is the fundamental dividing line uh, between uh, if there are two Irelands, certainly those two Irelands are Protestant and Catholic, as John Hume pointed out. And if there are two islands, those two islands are supported by a, by a British connection that, that, that has maintained that difference for a very long time. But can I say just, I don't think he should be faulted too much for not appreciating the North in all its complexity. He is on record as having said to, I think, Erskine Childers that he, said that he didn't understand the North. Yeah. And um, it is hindsight, really, and it's anachronistic to blame de Valera too much for... for I suppose sharing or simply reflecting what was a, a whole southern... I think it's just an interesting speculation that if, they had, if the attempt at conquest of Ireland were made under Mary and not under Elizabeth, we would probably have been the Protestants and Ian Paisley would probably have been maybe Archbishop of Armagh. Now, <laughs> for many years, de Valera enjoyed almost the entire support of the Protestant community in the South. Is that not so, John? But, but, but is this significant, really? Well, um, the Protestants in the South were living off the hump, so to speak, and they were the rich 5%, and um, it didn't cost the Valera anything. You know, this is the kind of toleration we clap ourselves in the back for, that we have a Protestant president and so They're on. no threat. Th yes, and this doesn't cost us anything. No. It doesn't upset our cosy homogeneity. Now, uh, partition was related, of course, to another... Uh, event, another feature of the de Valera age, and that was our neutrality during the Second World War. Now, uh, one of the moments, I suppose, which most people remember, it's like the death of John F. Kennedy, most of us remember listening the night that Dev answered Churchill. Let's just recall a bit of that speech. The newspapers have been very persistent in looking for my answer to Mr. Churchill's recent broadcast. I know the kind of answer I am expected to make. I know the answer that first brings to the lips 
of every man of Irish blood who heard or read that speech, no matter in what circumstances or in what part of the world he found himself. I know the reply I would have given a quarter of a century ago. But I have deliberately decided that this is not the reply I shall make tonight. I shall strive not to be guilty of adding any fuel to the flames of hatred and passion, which if continue to be fed, promise to burn up whatever is left by the war of decent human feeling in Europe. Allowances can be made for Mr. Churchill's statement, however unworthy, in the first flush of his victory. No such excuse can be found for me in this quieter atmosphere. There are, however, some things which it is my duty to say, some things which it is essential to say. I shall try to say them as dispassionately as I can. Mr. Churchill makes it clear that in certain circumstances he would have violated our neutrality and that he would justify his action by Britain's necessity. It seems strange to me that Mr. Churchill does not see that this, if accepted, would mean that Britain's necessity would become a moral code. And that when this necessity was sufficiently great, other people's rights were not to count. It is quite true that other great powers believe in this same code in their own regard and have behaved in accordance with it. That is precisely why we have the disastrous successions of wars. World War number one, World War number two, and shall it be World War number three? Surely Mr. Churchill must see that if his contention be admitted in our regard, a like justification can be framed for similar acts of aggression elsewhere. And no small nation adjoining a great power could ever hope to be permitted to go its own way in peace. It is indeed fortunate that Britain's necessity did not reach the point when Mr. Churchill would have acted. All credit to him that he successfully resisted the temptation, which I have no doubt many times assailed him in his difficulties, and to which I freely admit many leaders might have easily succumbed. It is indeed hard for the strong to be just to the weak, but acting justly always has its rewards. Well, uh, that was from the famous Churchill, uh, de Valera replied to Churchill in 1945. Listening to it now, how does it strike you, Desmond Williams? As fine as it sounded then. I heard it myself when I was surrounded by a group of Englishmen in England. And I felt immensely proud in a way that I rarely have ever done as a result of a, a political speech. Uh, the elements of compassion, patronage, condescension, and pride were superbly combined in that speech. I rather admired the uh, little reference to Mr. Churchill in the first flush of victory, given the fact that Mr. Churchill, when he did make that speech, was obviously partly slightly flushed under the influence of brandy and champagne. <coughs> of course, 
One factor he left out naturally, there was no reason for him to bring it in, and that was one of the reasons why the British did not invade Ireland and violate our neutrality was the very existence of partition. Because as long as the British had the ports that was up there, there was no need for them to have the ports down here. No, I think de Valera at that moment really did speak for the Irish race at home Proudly, and abroad. Yeah. Pather, you go along with that? I do, completely. I think there's no grounds for, or no basis for any kind of conflict here. It was his finest hour. It was the culmination, of course, of, of his most successful achievement in his whole career. I think it showed the quality which uh, drew him such allegiance, such fervid allegiance for so long from so many Irish people. <coughs> the quality of dignity, of gentlemanliness, and ability to be firm and to stand up for the Irish people against uh, Great Britain or any other great power. He, he managed to enact this uh, in speeches like that. David versus Goliath. But the whole conduct of neutrality was splendidly done from beginning to end. I think the word that describes that speech is dignitas or dignity. and. It is something that the Irish uh, will back their leader for in terms of the British every time. And uh, in that way, in this speech, I think De Valera transcended even O'Connell and Parnell because the Irish people backed both O'Connell and Parnell because those men could put fear into the hearts uh, of Englishmen. Stand up to the English. And, and, and it proudly. Which we're not doing at the moment. But that speech had more than that. It was a kind of a summation. He wasn't putting fear into their hearts. He was doing it as an Irishman who commanded respect. Now, there is one thing I would like to say at this point. Uh, not going back on the justification for our neutrality, or indeed um, the purely uh, the, the strategic, uh, political strategic implications of it. But I would ask you to say a word on this. Those years, the years of the Second World War, the years of the emergency, as we call them here, are a vital part of this age of de Valera, a vital part of the Ireland in which many of us grew up. What do you think they did to Ireland? What sort of a mark do you think those years left on us? Liam. Well, I think they left a very considerable mark. I think we're still too close to them to, to understand fully how, how much they changed Ireland. They certainly had a very considerable effect on the North and the effect they had on the North, the bringing of wartime prosperity, the follow-through of the welfare state and so on in the North, has contributed, in my opinion, to the strains which brought about the breakdown in the North. I think they had a very considerable influence on us here too, but mainly in, in, the, in the sphere of economics. Yes, and of course they were followed by one of our chilliest uh, periods, uh, one of the chillest bleakest economic period. Sinn yes. Féin's uh, self-sufficiency broke down, actually, with the end of the war. And, of course, the, great, the period of the Great Immigration, which followed the war, particularly in the early 50s, did leave a most terrible mark on the country. Yes, from there on to 57, 1957, 58, the end of the 50s, was our darkest hour as an independent state. But, you know, it must be said about neutrality, on the South, it had the effect, negative effects of <clears throat> turning us in on ourselves, and a kind of impoverishment resulted from neutrality. But this was more than balanced out, I think, by the fact that neutrality uh, pr proved sovereignty. This was the whole point. It, it was the first superb test of, of a sovereign state. 
and it initiated a kind of attitude towards foreign policy, sorry, not initiated, I suppose continued, uh, which was later found fruition in, in our independent foreign policy in the late 50s. Desmond? Yes, I agree with that. Um, I was um, a little disappointed in a way, however, that uh, the kind of moral implications of neutrality have not sufficiently impressed themselves on the Irish people. I would have rather liked neutrality not to have not to be justified merely on the basis or largely on the basis of the British occupation of the North. Uh, it seems to me that uh, it would be a good thing for the world and for ourselves if we had adopted the principle of neutrality on the same basis in which the Swiss have done so. And Switzerland's role as a neutral state has almost something moral in it. And uh, the particular justification suggested, not expressly stated by de Valera, was this uh, issue of partition. If the British would only satisfy us on that, then we might have associated themselves, ourselves, with them in the war. Now, I regard neutrality, could be regarded partly as an expression of Christian aversion to war. And I must say, of course, that de Valera did do certain things of, that would testify to that, namely his refusal to hand over the uh, German and Italian and Japanese citizens as requested, the refusal to participate in any of the nonsense of the Nuremberg trials, the refusal to hand back people sought for by the Victorian, victorious allies. All of this seemed to me to be of a very high moral order. And I just wonder whether, in fact, uh, under the kind of conditions we are going to face in the future, whether the episode of neutrality of 39, 1945 is going to be part of, of a tradition of Irish foreign policy, or whether there is a danger that for reasons of economic advantage and the European myth that we will abandon it. And indeed, uh, Eamon de Valera uh, was a man who did take a positive moral stance in international affairs. Mm -hmm. He was, of course, he played quite a part in the League of Nations. He was president, as I remember, of the Council and of the Assembly. And uh, we have a fragment here from a speech he made to the Assembly in September of 1934 about the issuing of an invitation to the Soviet Union to become a member of the League. I think that there is no real difficulty here at all. That all we have got to do is to frankly face the situation. We can individually make it quite clear what our attitude will be when the necessary application or the necessary steps to bring the question of Russia's application are taken. We can Russia will have that assurance in advance. She can make her application and 
in the nature of things. She must feel that she is going to have a very favorable consideration of the application. Why? Because it's obvious that anyone who has the interest of the League at heart and looks to the League as an instrument for the preservation of world peace must desire to see in the League a nation of the importance that Russia has. Curiously prophetic words, perhaps, when we think again of Ireland's stance in the United Nations over the admission uh, of, of uh, China. Father? Yes, that was Frank, um, Frank, um, Frank Aiken's best hour mm -hmm. when he raised that at the League of Nations. I don't think he pursued it with the energy that Dev would have pursued it, but um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a good thing that he made the gesture, at least. Yes, well, during the age of De Valera, we have uh, played uh, a small but significant part in international affairs, Desmond. Yes, um, on the whole issue of non-proliferation of nuclear weapons, uh, we played quite an important part. I think uh, our role as the United Nations in that particular period, shall we say, from 1955, initiated, by the way, by a speech of Liam Cosgraves in that month, but in the period 1955 to 1965, we played a role that was out of proportion, as it were, to our small resources. We enjoyed a, a, a moral um, repute, testified to some extent, anyhow, by the election of Freddie Boland as president of the General Assembly. Our connections with the third world, uh, which can still be or developed, were then established, and uh, there appeared to be a kind of understanding and agreement between the policies of Ireland on the one hand and Canada and India on the other. I think that for a small country, we have been doing rather well, and it goes back to this and period. And it endorses your early view of the moral st yeah. standard we took, the moral values we took in the... Well, now we have... We, there are so many aspects of this many-sided subject that we haven't touched on. We, ha we've, we haven't talked very much, for instance, about uh, the uh, De Valera's uh, constitutional genius, where his, his, uh, his, uh, his um, the, the whole uh, subject which is, um, Professor Lyons is speaking on at this uh, summer school under the title From Free State to Republic. We've barely touched on the economic blizzards that swept Ireland during the time and perhaps the lack of positive economic ac action in the social and economic fields. There are very many of these friends. But now, in, we've just over a minute left, and in that minute, I would like you all, perhaps, to make one or two points that you would, uh, briefly, that you would feel that you would like to say about this subject. John? Johnny Murphy? Well, I think he will be assessed as, as a very great leader of the Catholic Gaelic nation. And that sums up his achievements. And, his and the clergyman? I think his real achievement is the building of and the maintaining of representative institutions in this country. Uh, Ireland, uh, for whatever it is, uh, is a democracy, and it is a functioning democracy.
Father O'Donnell? I think he just belongs to Irish history, and it's a wee bit too early to assess his, his values. Liam? <clears throat> I think uh, his great gift was that he never pushed too hard or too fast. Uh, he always held something in reserve. And Desmond Williams? My only comment is that none of us here have really made any observation as to his defects. <laughs> well, I suppose, as we've all said, to attempt an assessment at all at this early stage uh, is perhaps, uh, if not rash, at least it shows uh, a certain courage. Uh, from us here at the Clare Lakelands Hotel in Scariff, uh, it's a good evening from Padre O'Donnell, Desmond Williams, Liam Dupuyer, uh, Johnny Murphy, Emmett Larkin and myself, Sean McRaven. Good evening.